Next up on Emirates World is a biographer who's written books on Hollywood stars like Tom Cruise and Angelina Jolie, pop stars like Madonna, celebrities like David and Victoria Beckham. But I guess the book that Andrew Morton will be best remembered for is his, at the time, unauthorized biography of Diana, Princess of Wales. Subsequently, we discovered that Diana herself was very much involved in the writing of the book. Andrew's been recording how the book came about here at the Emirates Festival of Literature, and he joins me now in the studio. So, uh, Andrew, welcome. Um, Andrew, this book took the world by storm and for the first time laid open the secrets of Diana's marriage to Charles, Prince of Wales. Let's go back 25 years. How did you get involved? Well, I had uh, friends in common with the Princess of Wales. She knew I was writing a book. Uh, she, she and I got on quite well on various royal tours that we'd been on, and uh, we'd even been to the Gulf States. The last time I went to, came to Dubai was in 1988 during the Charles and Diana Gulf tour. And what I didn't realise was that she was desperate uh, to, to tell her story because she felt a prisoner of the palace, a prisoner of circumstance, a prisoner of a marriage. And she offered me an interview. Well, nobody's ever going to turn that down. And, of course, the difficulty was I was a, a well-known royal commentator or reporter. So we used an intermediary, a chap called James Colthurst, who was known to both of us, and I would uh, type out questions, and he would take them along to Kensington Palace, sitting uh, sit in her sitting room, and she would chat away about her life. And in a way, the, the, the questions were, were often irrelevant because she had a point to make, and that point was an extraordinary one. And I remember first listening to the first tape in a working men's cafe in North London. And I thought she'd be talking about, you know, her humanitarian mission, her charity work and so on. No, uh, totally wrong, as I was <laughs> as I was many times during this uh, endeavour. Uh, she talked about a woman called Camilla, never heard of her, uh, something called bulimia, never heard of it, and uh, various uh, escapades that were truly shocking. And when I left that working man's cafe in North London, I felt like the guys in All the President's Men, that I'd entered like a, a dangerous parallel universe. And I, when I went back on home on the, on the tube, on the subway, I stood well back from the, from the platform edge. <laughs> so at that point, had you any inkling at all of the fact that the marriage was in trouble? Well, the year before I started work on the Diana book, I'd written a, a kind of a frothy light-hearted book called Diana's Diary. And I'd had several conversations about with people who were part of the royal household, who gave very dark hints that all was not well in the marriage. And certainly, as an outsider, you saw that they didn't spend an awful lot of time together. Uh, but you never for a moment thought that they were going to separate or divorce. It was just, you know, the, the whole that issue was, was wholly absurd. And, um, but various people were, were, were saying um, that, that all was not well in the marriage. So you took that on board as you were going forwards with preparing a, a biography of the princess herself. But nonetheless, that was just, you know, there's one thing to say over a drink in, in a pub. There's quite another to say on the record <laughs> um, for a book. How important was it while you were writing the book to maintain total secrecy? It was absolutely vital that uh, secrecy was maintained. First of all, to give the princess deniability. 
but also, secondly, to keep Fleet Street from finding out what was going on. So we, we, it was like kind of playing chess in three dimensions. You had to make a move knowing that the newspapers would be eager to find out what was going on and also what the palace uh, were trying to find out as well. And I wrote various um, articles for the Sunday Times during the year that of what I call living dangerously uh, before the book came out in, in an attempt to show the world that I knew what was going on inside the palace and that, that my views should be respected and taken on board as sensible and not hysterical. Of course, that policy fell to dust the moment the book came out. You say that she poured her heart out to you on these tapes. So you'd write a few questions. She then had a little portable tape recorder and she'd record into it. And then you'd listen to the tapes. Where are those tapes now? The tapes now are physically owned by James Colthurst because it was his tape recorder, his uh, uh, his tapes. But they're, they're held in a, a bank vault because they're now a piece of history. They are indeed. Do you think we'll ever get to hear them? Well, in, in actual fact, the parts of the tapes were uh, released uh, to coincide with her the anniversary of her death, um, and they were broadcast on National Geographic. And that documentary has been widely acclaimed and um, is up for various uh, awards. What was the reaction by national broadcasters, by Fleet Street, when the book first appeared, when you first approached Fleet Street, the, the British national newspapers, and said, look, I've got this book, would you like to serialise it? There was a, a dismal week in February 1992 where we never thought this book would see light of day. The Daily Mail, who we approached first of all, they weren't interested. They said implausibly there was nothing new in the book. And Andrew Neil, the editor of the Sunday Times, had been uh, hauled over the coals for some of his royal coverage. And so he was a bit nervous. And I ended up speaking to one of the people I'd interviewed for the book. I knew that they knew um, Andrew Knight, who was then the chief executive at um, News International, publishers of the Sunday Times. He was briefed on, on the fact that the book you know, was true and it was contentious and you really should think about it, think again. And Andrew Neil reluctantly thought again, sent along his deputy to read the book. She realised that it was hot stuff. And, um, and then began this collaboration between myself, Andrew Neil and the Sunday Times. And it was serialised in the Sunday Times. What was the reaction when the news broke? Well, the reaction was total hysteria and total mania. I mean, various newspaper editors said that Andrew Neil and myself should be horsewhipped. A member of Parliament suggested that I would be sent to the Tower of London. Um, the chairman of the Press Complaints Commission talked about the dabbling in, in the stuff of people's souls. Um, it was just uproar. And it's very difficult to convey now, looking back 25 years ago, when all these facts are taken as read, for, for the sheer surprise and shock that, that greeted it all. And in fact, I remember my, my uh, lawyer said, I don't understand why we were so surprised, because she had been living with the reality of it for many months. 
And so she was kind of used to it, but nobody else was. And, and so it was like a sonic boom, a shockwave that went that rippled through British society and also the wider world. You must have been in demand by just about every TV station, every radio station in the world. Yeah, I mean, I felt a bit like one of these um, old fairground boxers that's, that has been challenged by everybody. <laughs> and because at the, at the time, I couldn't say that the Princess of Wales was... A collaborator. I used to say that she had nothing to do with the book. Her friends and her family did, and that was my standard line. And quite frankly, if she'd lived, I'd be saying that to you now because I always pledged to give her deniability. After she died, there was no point in doing that because she was now a major historical figure. People must have pressed you on that and said, "Well, which friends? Which which family?" Well, thankfully. A number of her friends went on the record and they gave their names and they were under tremendous pressure during those early few days and that they faced an awful lot of criticism from their own families for, for daring to help. But they realised as well that Diana needed help because her life was miserable. And that was, a, that was the other aspect to, to this whole story, that she couldn't go on much longer in the way that she was, she was doing. And, you know, when Prince Charles would enter the room, she'd walk out. And we all know that a marriage is it's usually two sides that uh, end it. And, and she initially wanted the, the book to be called Diana, The True Story. And we said to her, look, it can't be the true story because there's another side to it. I'm sure Prince Charles has got his point of view. So it's got to be her true story. And we went back and forth about this. We even mocked up a, a dummy cover for her that said, Dinah, the true story. But we, you know, we stuck our heels in and she came round as she normally did when um, faced with the kind of inexorable logic of these things. Did you ever receive any response from Diana or any reaction from Diana as to whether she was pleased with the outcome of the book or it had, had the effect that she'd set out to achieve? Oh, yeah. I mean, Diana read the book before it was published. I mean, she, she made comments on the manuscript. And I remember I, I wrote a sentence saying, she, you know, about her school, school days. She had no particular ambition. And she wrote on the, side, on the margin, did with a big, <laughs> big explanation mark. <laughs> and then she read one chapter about some period of her life and she said she burst into tears reading it. So, so it was quite a quest, really. It wasn't just a book. It was an emotional journey for all concerned. It's very difficult to convey to people just how intimately you were involved in her life. She was on the phone four or five times a day to James. Um, we'd help her writing speeches, we'd write position papers. I mean, we were like a shadow court for a, a period of time. And it was a, a remarkable period of my life, and one, of course, I'll never forget. What about the reaction from the other side? Did you suddenly find yourself persona non grata? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, quite frankly, I knew that I was, in biographical terms, a kamikaze pilot. I mean, you know, uh, there was no way back for me uh, after this book. But um, at the same time, I think that a lot of people began to appreciate the difficulties she'd had inside the royal family and the, the unhappiness that she'd felt. And I think that a lot of people around the world saw her less as a two-dimensional icon and more as a three-dimensional three human being, someone who was flawed, but she had great gifts and great potential. 
Now, you're very involved with the royal family, both past and indeed present. And a couple of years back, you, you published a book on the Duke of Windsor, who famously abdicated in 1936 in order to be able to marry an American divorcee. Hmm. Uh, when did you start getting interested in that particular subject? What motivated you to research and write a book about that? Well, I was always fascinated about what happened uh, after the war with the, the discovery of some tapes and microfilm relating to German Foreign Office uh, cables relating in turn to the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and their links to Hitler. So this book called 17 Carnations dealt with their relationship with the Nazis, with Hitler and with the subsequent cover-up by the British and American governments of what would now be called fake news. And so that inspired me to look at Wallace Simpson, because every time she entered the story, I always thought, oh, the whole thing kind of steps up a gear. So I wanted to write a book about, about uh, Wallace Simpson called Wallace in Love. And this was an exploration of her relationship with Edward VIII, but also other men in her life. And I discovered that the man in her life who, who lived in plain sight was a chap called Herman Rogers. And she said on, on his second wedding day that he's the only man I've ever loved. So in, in a way, it's the, the book is an extraordinary book in the, in the sense that it, it gives the lie to the idea that the romance between the Duke of Windsor and the Duchess of Windsor was the, the romance of the century. From, from his side, he was always besotted with her. From her side, by the end, she could barely tolerate him. And she went to her death, always loving somebody else. Where does the title come from, 17 Carnations? Well, the title of the first book, 17 Carnations, comes from the, the rumour that swept London and Berlin, I may add, that uh, Joachim von uh, Ribbentrop, who was the foreign minister and for a time the ambassador to London, was having a wild affair with Wallace Simpson and that the 17 carnations represented the 17 times that they'd had sex together and the, the bunch of flowers that he sent round to her home in central London. Remember, at the, during the 30s, what you forget is that George V and the Prime Minister agreed that uh, the Prince of Wales, later Edward VIII, should be f followed by a Scotland Yard detective as was the Ernest Simpson and Wallace Simpson, because nobody could understand what on earth the Prince of Wales was doing with this couple who were, after all, not from the aristocracy, not particularly wealthy, and um, they thought that they were blackmailing the, the Prince of Wales. And um, so you have a situation where the future king is being watched by Scotland Yard. It was an extraordinary story. Gosh, I wonder what the tabloids would have made of that <laughs> at the time, had they known. If they found, but um, the superintendent of Scotland Yard, he, he also said there's a, she had a, an affair with somebody else, a chap called Guy Trundle, who was a used car Ford uh, salesman and um, apparently a very good dancer. Goodness. Wow. How extraordinary. Your latest book, which uh, coincided with the royal marriage of Prince Harry to Meghan Markle, your latest book is all about Meghan Markle. Presumably, as soon as the engagement was announced, you thought, hmm, another great book in the pipeline. Off I go. Yes, indeed. I mean, the, Meghan Markle lived in, in Los Angeles, in, in an area uh, near to where I live in Los Angeles, which is Pasadena. Pasadena is where my wife is from. So even before the engagement, people would say... Oh, yeah, I remember her when she was at Immaculate Heart, which was her high school. 
So um, it was it was like picking low low hanging fruit. <laughs> As a writer, yeah. your ears pricked up and thought, yeah. "Hmm." So I'd be, be an I'd, easy one. I'd certainly been interested in her long before Prince Harry turned up. I was a, a fan of Suits. I thought she lit up the screen. She had something about her. So yeah, so it was a, a fun project to work on. Any possible resemblance between Wallace Simpson and Duke of Windsor? Well, Here we again. We have an American divorcee marrying a, a British prince, hopefully with better results this time. Well, this is what I found absolutely fascinating: that here we have Meghan Markle, biracial, divorced, an American actor who's appeared in all kinds of half-naked scenes and suggestive scenes on TV, and being given the appellation Her Royal Highness. Whereas <laughs> Wallace Simpson. I mean, the, her crime was to marry twice and divorce twice with two husbands living. And the royal family, the church, the, the political class wouldn't have anything to do with allowing her to marry Edward VIII. And he had to abdicate as a result. It really does show you how far society has moved on. And when people say, oh, nothing's changed. I mean, look at that. That's a remarkable change. Andrew, it's been great talking to you. It's been fascinating to hear all about how that book, that sensational book about Diana, her true story came about. Um, thank you for sharing time with us today. And um, are you enjoying the Festival of Literature? Has it been good? I've loved the Festival of Literature. It's been, it's been great to meet up with old friends like Kate Aidy and, uh, and look at the changes in Dubai over the last 20-odd years since I was last here. Well, do come back and see us again. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.